Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and I hope you're all well today wherever you're listening to this in the world. Today's guest is a Leaders Performance Institute member. It's Chad Morrow, a Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Air Force where he serves as a command psychologist. Chad has more than a decade's experience in the US Air Force, but when he was younger, he also played football with LaSalle and later worked with their athletic program. It's a dual background that enables him to draw numerous parallels between sports and the military during our conversation. And to give you some more context, the role of the psychologist in the US Air Force has grown in prominence in recent decades, with preventative mechanisms increasingly employed, whereas before there was a tendency to push service personnel to the brink of burnout as Chad himself explains. His resume also includes setting up psychological services for a geographically separated SEER school, which is Survival, Evasion, Resistance and Escape School, for Special Reconnaissance Airmen. And while serving with the US Air Force's 23rd Special Tactics Squadron, he was one of a group of performance practitioners to embed and create a holistic synchronised team, as he terms it. Chad is also one of 55 doctors who served the elite of the US Air Force in a preventative, tertiary and ultimately holistic fashion. All in all, he's well placed to discuss tips around integration, especially if practitioners are cute enough to admit to themselves that they don't always relish being embedded in a wider team for a variety of reasons. Other topics of conversation include job analyses and recruitment, what you need to know and why the military isn't so far removed from college sport in that regard, just to give one example. Chad also delves into leadership skills and transition processes. All good stuff. So let's get into that conversation in a moment. Before that, I just want to remind all the Leaders Performance Institute members amongst you about our Leaders Meet Coach and Player Development event at Cardiff Principality Stadium on the 24th of March. Speakers include Jess Thelby, the head coach of the England netball team and a former guest on this podcast. It also includes Dan Clements, a performance coach manager with Welsh Rugby Union, and Ian Brunschweiler, who is the head of technical development at English Premier League Club Southampton. If you're a member as part of a team membership, remember you can attend all of our events. And if you'd like to attend and you're not a member of the Leaders Performance Institute, please inquire about joining as a member by checking out leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Back to the conversation now, and I first asked Chad to outline his professional background. I did my schooling at a university in Philadelphia called LaSalle University. Uh, I went there for undergrad, actually played football there, so they gave me a grad assistant job. So I stayed there to get my master's and my doctoral degree, and uh, they made me work half-time with uh, freshman athletes, and then the rest of the time I was in school, and again, they paid for paid for it to my tuition. Uh, once I graduated from there, I did a uh, residency in the Air Force, United States Air Force. So I went down to Wolford Hall in San Antonio, spent a, spent a year down there, came out of there, went to a smaller Air Force base in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, spent about four, four to five months in a typical kind of psychological clinic and then moved into a SEER school, so a uh, survival, evade, uh, resistance, escape school, providing psychological services for people going through that. Spent four years there, then moved down to Florida, where I went into AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command, as a psychologist at uh, 23 STS, so Special Tactics Squadron. And I spent about three and a half to four years at that unit, which is a smaller maneuver element. And I moved up to the 2-4 SAL, which is the 24th Special Operations Wing, as the command psychologist, and did that for a couple of years. And then I came up to North Carolina for our elite, uh, our elite unit in North Carolina. 
all those roles I've just been as a psychologist um, supporting the operations. I see. And what does your day-to-day look like? Or does it change, in fact, from day-to-day? Uh, it changes day-to-day. We have probably, uh, it's probably easier to say there's four kind of core tasks we do here. Uh, one is assessment and selection. So everyone that comes in our organization is selectively screened. Uh, we do just the basic psychological provision of services, right? So anything from clinical care to consultation. We augment and support medical training, right? So an example would be, is the training stressful enough where you're going to actually learn and retain memory and not too stressful that you can't encode memory? So there's some of the medical training support to the general operational support. And that goes back into like the SEER support and other kind of special activities. Performance enhancement, which most people think of. Generally, sports psychology skills will provide those. And then the coaching for the organization from the junior enlisted, junior officer to the senior executive levels. So every day we're doing one of those five tasks and they change from day to day how much we're doing them. Right. So what are some of the projects you have been involved in devising? What type of programs have you tried to put in place in your current role and perhaps also in the past? Yeah, I think I think overall the biggest programs that I've been involved with was uh, first is a uh, as a young officer standing up the psychological services for an, a, a geographically separated SEER school was was uh, pretty large, right? So traditionally, our SEER schools stay on the West Coast in uh, Spokane, Washington for the Air Force. And we had decided, uh, well, not we, the Air Force has decided to do a smaller school, uh, not, not full captivity, for not full 19 days for people that were high risk for capture. So maybe like a contracting officer or a nurse. So we had to stand up an entire new program in Alabama, uh, and we were the first people there to do it for the psychological services as well. So I think doing that from groundwork, from high visibility, uh, it was about the time, if you remember, when some Navy guys got caught off the coast of Iran and kind of embarrassed the country. Um, So then they didn't want that to happen again, so they stood up all these training platforms. So that was probably like my, that was my first year in the active duty military, and uh, and I was very lucky to be at the right time and place to stand up the psychological services for that, that program. I think second is I was the first person to embed in a line operational unit uh, at the 2-3 STS. So myself, a physical therapist, and a physician all came at the same time. And we were able to stand up a holistic synchronized team on a smaller scale uh, down there in Florida, which I think was really when we were deploying a lot, right? So, you know, I deployed seven times just out of that, that unit. So it was a good ability to um, use our skill set in novel ways and we were the first team in there. And I think that was uh, something I'm very proud of. And it was, was, again, was just right right timing, right place. And then I think up here, um, we've been able to do a lot of things. So one is we were able to do a new job analysis to hire appropriately and enhance how we selectively screen here, which if you're familiar with that task is a, is a large undertaking, both organizationally, statistically, and then getting it uh, part of the culture. And we also kind of uh, were finally able to merge the 55 different doctors we have here into one team that we call HPO here, which actually kind of really enhanced our ability to take care of the, uh, of the people up here in, a, in both a preventative and tertiary fashion. I think if I look back at my you know, 14, 15 years in the military, those are probably the three biggest projects uh, that I've been involved in. It's fantastic to hear about them. And of course, I invited you on this afternoon to discuss the question of holistic teams, and I'd really love to dig down into that a little bit more, perhaps dig out some of those specifics. What does a holistic team look like in your world when it works well? Well, I think the basics is that uh, all those specialists are actually on the same team, right? So I think um, I think having up here, we're fortunate to have 55 different specialists that, uh, that actually all focus on those five kind of areas I said before. 
Um, and I think having them all under one kind of uh, organization makes it easier to scale up and scale down support as you need. Uh, I think having priorities for that team, like so for our priorities for our 55 special, which is provide full spectrum care, no matter what your spe specialty is, right? So that means you're focusing on bringing people into the organization, taking care of them while they're in the organization and then transitioning them out of the organization, right? So I think having a priority for that for all those people helps kind of synchronize that holistic team. The second thing is just putting a priority on synchronization, right? There's when you selectively hire people, um, they're usually the top of their craft and like having them slow down to go fast is a hard thing to do, right? So I think part of the priority needs to be, you know, there's a famous saying, right? Like if you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. And I think all you hear us saying all the time is if you want to go far, go together, um, which means slow down and be synchronized because three smart people make better decisions than one. Then lastly, prevention, right? So I think for us, particularly uh, being in, in the military, we've been at war 22 years and maybe we're about to go into the next one, but, uh, but like we didn't do it very well in the beginning. We just ground people to dust, right? So I think for the past five years, we've been able to set up preventive mechanisms that we can actually help those people. And again, whatever the organization is, you could have them. I just think it starts with putting all those people on one team uh, with some leadership oversight and then making sure you have the priorities that everyone buys into or you can hold them accountable to. I also think you need to have meetings, right? Like I think there needs to be meetings where you're putting all those people into one organization. For a while here, myself, the position and the senior kind of uh, PT all sat in the same places, right? Uh, or close enough that you knew where they were at, right? We weren't geographically separated that much. And I think that helps uh, with day-to-day -day contact. I think you need force function meetings. So you talk about the people that need to be talked about. I think you need to set up feedback mechanisms, right? If it's 360s, if it's one-on-one, -on -one, but you need to have feedback to make sure everyone's getting corrected if they're going too fast um, and just helping them slow down. I think those are probably the keys to making a good team up here, probably anywhere. Uh, the specifics might be different, but I think you need priorities, you need leadership, and you need uh, force function kind of contact points with the specialists. And you mentioned previously the risk of going it alone. What are some of the derailers that you need to be aware of? I would say a couple of things. I would say one, like people that are successful here, and I, and I think I spent a long time in the athletic department, and I think it's the same thing for sports, you need to be able to manage your teams, right? And I think that teams isn't as simple as just your psych team, right? Like if you think if you're an athletic department, it's the athletic trainers, it's the psychs, it's the coaches, it's the, you know, all those kinds of things. So even up here, right? Like I got to manage, there's seven different flavors of psychologists just on my psychology team, right? So I got to manage those teams, like a neuropsych, sports psych, operational psychologist, clinical providers, they're all different flavors doing different things. So you have to be able to kind of manage that team you also have to manage your customer. I think we hire people up here that do one thing and it's not being good at soft skills, right? It's not good at being interpersonal skills. It's at doing a hard mission set. So sometimes they come with lack of tact that makes, you know, some doctors bristle, right? And then lastly, you got to work for a bunch of line commanders that aren't psychologists, physicians, and physical therapists, right? And they, they see risk to mission, risk to force uh, very differently than we do, but you have to manage those command teams. So like, on the, the people that fail here are the ones that can't either manage their team, they can't manage their customer, or they can't manage their command teams. And I would just interchange coach and command team, right? It's the same thing. Um, but if you can't do those three things well all the time, you, you will not do good synchronized care. Uh, and you probably won't perform well. And maybe most importantly, you won't like the job, right? So I think that's one big area to derail. Uh, I think speed is the other one, like I said. I think you when you hire people that are, you know, usually the top of their game and they got to then slow down to work together. 
Um, I think everyone says they want to do that, John, but I'm not sure everyone really, if they've never done it, wants to do that, right? And I think if you're the ER doc that had 22 people supporting them in the ER and they come here and they got none, uh, that's a hard mental calculus to kind of change through. And, and, and similar, like I think a lot of people think they want to work embedded because it's closer to the fight, closer to the team, but like it comes with no support, right? It comes with, you know, when I was a four months in a clinic, I had 22 site techs that worked for me. And I got one now, right? So I think the difference in the level of support isn't necessarily thought through. And I think that's the same in just general. If you work for the NFL, you're not going to have, in the American American NFL, like you're not going to have as much support you would if you worked in a clinic somewhere, right? So I think I think it's those three things. You don't know your team's customers and command teams and can't be politically uh, or interpersonally skilled to do them. You want to go fast even though you, you know it's bad and you, and you really think you want to be embedded, but you don't realize what that means. And you mentioned the NFL there, and if we talk about pro sport more generally, it's not uncommon for money and results to be prioritized over the development of holistic teams. So I'm curious, Chad, what advice do you have for the world of sport to help them stay on track in this regard? I think it's all about right, defining your return on investment, right? Like, uh, I think we as, let's just say, like uh, health professionals don't necessarily do a good job of defining return on investment. Like you go to business school and you, and you run the team and you own the team, everything you do is about return on investment in the bottom line, right? We don't train people at a young age and young professionals to do that. Right. But I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that all those specialists have a significant return on investment. If we're just looking at just cash, right? So if you just look at one of our, one of our guys is worth about $10 million, right? So not, not as much as like the NFL starting quarterback, but like that's a lot of money. Right. And if we keep people on, if we keep 20 people on the line, that's what $200 million worth of people that we've kept on the line. So I think, I think if the professionals can actually find their return on investment and then and then give them that return on investment and make that like sales pitch and business speak, it becomes pretty self-evident and it becomes less of like a feel-good story, right? It's a hardline business number that that you know business owners can respond to. I also think baselining people is pretty significant. I think people do that in different ways in our pro sports. The military will grind people very differently, but the grind's still the same. Like life happens, right? But if you can show people like, you know, here's the health of this, this team for this long. And now I've implemented this baseline and I actually can give them actionable interventions throughout that time. People can see that longevity and enhanced performance over time. Right. But you have to be able to do a pre post and compare it. Right. So if we lost 10 guys to like, I'm just going to step up to like a torn ACL and then we start baseline them and we change the, the physical therapist and ATC coverage. And then we only have two people lost to an ACL that's a baseline program that you're showing clear impact on your performer, right? So I think we just don't train health professionals to do that stuff. I think recruitment's another one, right? Like, if, I mean, if you do that well, right? Like if you, if, you, if you take care of your people well, right? Those people pay back into your organization, right? So I think when you're looking at how do you get a business owner to invest in these resources, some of it is the level that we show people how much we care, people are going to want to come work for us, right? This is why Alabama has the best weight room in the country, right? Alabama, the, the you know the the best football team, arguably uh, in America. I might get some some hate for that, but like their stuff is the best, right? Because they want uh, as a recruitment tool. We have fifty five specialists that work here for part of a recruitment tool, right? We know that we're going to come here and run you hard, but we're going to take care of you as well. I also think like if you do that well too, and you take care of them well, when you send them off, those people are going to help you kind of reinvest back in your team. Right. Like, and I think sometimes we forget that even if they left on a bad accord or their career got ended short or they just retired, if we take care of them through the process, they'll be our best allies on the outside 
and that's business, right? That's good business too. Like we're going to have, they're going to be something if they're announcers, if they're coaches in the future, if they're, you know, physicians themselves or insert politician, right? Like um, having them invested back in the team is a powerful thing. So I, I get it. Like you're paying doctors lots of money uh, and you're competing with that. Can you pay a player more money or an operator more money? But like, I think we need to train our young health professionals how to talk about return on investment in a business mindset so you can show it to those owners. I think you need to understand business owners would benefit from knowing how much that plays into recruitment overall because people want to go where they're going to be taken care of and feel like they're taken care of. And then if you send them off right, they're going to invest back in your teams, which is really what we want people to do. And if we talk about hiring and team building, what do you believe are some of the considerations that should go into a job analysis ahead of hiring someone? Is it a balance of skill sets, character, or alignment with values? I think generally speaking, you're going to have like three hiring categories, right? So you're going to have the people that have high skill and high fit, right? That's the number one hire across the board all the time, right? Like that's easy, no brainer. You don't need professionals to make those decisions for you. I think the second thing where it adds a lot of dilemma is the low skill, but good fit, right? Maybe they don't have the skill because the experience isn't there. Maybe they don't have the skill because they weren't taught that. So that's really, is, is it trainable and a good fit? That's the, I think, where the calculus has to go into. Because lastly, like low skill and low fit, like those are no brainers too, right? Like no one should be hiring people with no skills and no fit for their organizations, right? So I think most of the time you're looking for how do you make good hiring decisions for the people that may not have the skills, but they have the fit. If you want to look at this parallel, like the war has died down, right? So we have guys like five, six years ago, people were coming up here with seven, some deployments. Now there's zero. They don't have that experience and they're assessing for the most elite organization in the DOD, right? Uh, Department of Defense. So we have to look at that fit much more, right? Because they're not getting the experience somewhere else. How do we get the, just make sure we hire the right people then have the training bill to get them that experience. That's where we spend most of our time. I think sometimes that's a good parallel to maybe a little bit more college athletics than the NFL, the pro sports where there's, you got to be that 0.001% to be a professional athlete. So for like the college athletics, I think that's more their dilemma too, right? Like how do I get enough people to play that aren't going to like ruin my team? Job analyses are really going to be uh, how experts on those teams couch how they want to hire people, right? So our job is to hire, is to help them find their vocabulary, right? So like a traditional job analysis, if we go to like brass tacks, will be you take a bunch of experts. So let's say coaches for the, I don't know, any team and like all the coaches will then complete a survey about what's important for those teams, how important one through five, and then like, let's say what the top five are. And then give me an example of what a one would be and a five would be one being bad, five being excellent. Right. So you do all that stuff up front and then you would bring them in for like a five day working group. Right. So you would bring them in and then talk through those things so that uh, it just adds some validity to that. Right. Because then those coaches are picking the words that are going to describe the people they hire. Right. So you're just taking what they put in a survey, putting it back in front of them in a digestible format, and then having them go through and making sure these are the things that they actually really want to assess. The one and the five, they tend to they tend to be able to weed down a list of like 30 things because everything's important, uh, but there's a lot of redundancy, right? So like a lot of times it, people will want adaptable people or people that want high in problem solving. But when you look at those examples of one and five, like what's bad and what's good, you could probably pick one of those words so you don't have to rate like 100 different things, right? So that working group really narrows that list down. And then, then you would actually resurvey them based on phase of life, right? So say like... Um, you need like how high, say one of your attributes is problem solving. Like, do you need that as a rookie? Do you need that per position? 
Do you need that for everybody? Right. So you just go through and refine that, right? Maybe physical fitness needs to be really high for your youngest guys, but maybe not your veterans. Right. So I think you could have different weights to those attributes over time. And then if you're done with all that, then you would actually just uh, slap the table. You'd be using the language of the coaches to make their hiring recommendations. And then you got to train them what those attributes really are. Right. So like for us, if we assess problem solving, when we have an operator making that recommendation, they're trained to know problem solving at, you know, problem identification, course development. So COAs, you know, courses of action development and then solution implementation or execution. Right. So problem solving is defined pretty clearly for us. And that's what you would do for all your attributes. And then you do the statistical what we offer is statistical validation through that process. So that's really a generic job analysis and a. It just gives the coaches a scientific way to actually use a language that matters to them, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we keep hearing at Leaders is that sport tends to promote technical experts who are exceptional in their field, but who lack leadership skills. It sounds as if you're working to avoid such scenarios in your world. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think I think everyone is. I think I think there's ways to do that, but I think it is... It's the same thing, like, you know, the operator that has five, you know, Air Force crosses, uh, are you going to say no to that guy because he's bad on uh, deployed with an army team, right? I think, I think there's reasons you would say that, but, but I think it's the same analogy for a sports team. Do you hire the one, you know, prima donna star player that's going to destroy the whole team or not? There's ways that we get around that here. Like we start with the bottom. So like a bottom up focus where you have people go back and talk about the people that you didn't want on your team. Right. So like, because those are the people that are going to feel the bad hire the most, right. The, the, the bottom up team guys that are going to be with that person all the time. But if you can have those examples, it's pretty easy to kind of push back on a hiring authority that, Hey, last two times you did this, like you, you lost six other people in the organization. Right. So getting that data from the very bottom about what has made bad hires is a good way to kind of, everyone's hungry. If you shop when you're hungry, you make bad hiring decisions, right? And everyone's hungry all the time because there's just not a lot of a lot of supply out there for the demand that's required, both in sports and in the military. So I think knowing that up front, knowing the bottom down focus can help you with that. I think training is next. Like you got to train the people in the organization why the attributes matter more than just skill, right? Because I think it's, again, it's a no brainer if it's high skill, high fit, like that's a pretty easy hire. But like, if you got to pick people that are lower training, uh, lower skill and higher fit that comes at a, at a narrative that you need to control. And like for us, the first people to get those is the, is what we call the debt detachment one. And they're the ones that put everyone through their operator training course up here. And they're the ones that have to get these people to be certified at the end of that course to be a level of operator up here. And if you come in with half the skills that they had when they came through, like they're going to be frustrated. Right. So, so it's a constant kind of IO campaign uh, and narrative campaign with them. So they understand why, why the context makes this this way and that they can leverage that or make it better. And then top down, you just have people that are removed very public, right? Like the public reasons people are removed because it's usually up here. It's not a skill thing ever. It's a fit thing, right? I I've been here, I've been in soft for 13 years almost. And everyone that gets removed is a fit problem, not a skill problem. Right. And I, I can, I'm, pretty, I'm like 98% confident that everyone that's ever been removed from my time in soft has been a fit problem, not a, not a skill problem. But some of that comes when you remove those people, you remind the organization why they're being removed and it should relate back to your attributes, not their skill. All right. So I think, I think if you look at that bottom up, that training and that top down, you can get people to buy into an attribute based model, but I'm not Pollyannish. Like everyone wants the guy that, you know, can make 15 threes in a, in a row, no matter what, 
what toxicity brings to the team. It's really just a cultural change to what's more important for the long-term success of your teams. And do you find that there's an element of self-selection when you review that process? For sure. And we want that, to be honest with you. Like we put our attributes on our website. Like you can go to the 724 STG website right now and find them. We define them for you. We give you books we want you to read about them. Uh, we have you peer assess on those things. We brief them to you on day one. So like before you ever come here, you could go on the website and have read books about what our attributes are. You'll know what they are at the facet level. You can listen to podcasts on them. When you get here day one, I will brief you on what those attributes are. We're going to train you against biases and how to rate your peers on those attributes. Um, so like we're, we're pretty clear that that's who we want. Like for us up here, I think it's similar to sports. Like the worst thing isn't like we don't offer you a job. The worst thing is we hire you and it's not the job or the fit that you think it was because then everyone's miserable, right? So we spend a lot of time making sure that this is what we care about and that you you want to join a team that cares about those things. We've also made it pretty, pretty in debt, let's say, intertwined with our talent management system, right? So if you're going to stay in the unit and let's say sit for a troop chief board later, like so a more senior operator, you're going to go through another process. Where we're going to assess you on those same attributes, right? So from the time you come into the organization to the time you leave, you'll be assessed on those things, which just shows that we want it to be like the people that are going to the top of this organization will be high on those attributes. So I think, I think we want that self-selection to be honest. The final bucket I wanted to dip into this afternoon, Chad, was that one of transitions. What are some of the key considerations ahead of setting up a transition program? How does it differ from individual to individual? Yeah, I think uh, the first thing I would tell you, John, is to hire specialists to lead this out because we tried to do it here with two psychologists that also had five other jobs, right? And it wasn't very good until we actually hired someone uh, to be a dedicated developmental specialist. Uh, and that's the person that runs our transition programs because there's so much stuff out there that you can't do it as a side job. And I think if we're going to take it serious, which we do here, um, we need someone that's dedicated to that. So I think that's the number one thing that you need for success. I think two, you got to start for us. It's at least two years before you're going to go. Right. And it could be a year for some organizations, maybe six months for a sports team. I don't know, but like, you can't just like on Tuesday decide you're going to leave on Friday and expect to be prepared for that. So I think whatever your organization is, you should have a time frame where even if you're considering leaving the team, you have to start the transition process, right? It doesn't mean you have to follow through with it. It doesn't mean you can't go play somewhere else or go somewhere else. It doesn't mean you have to retire or leave, but you should have the process started so you're not caught on a, on a three-day transition process, right? So I would build in some kind of timeline. For here, it's two years. And I would say about... I would say about half actually follow through with that. So half the people that start the transition process don't end up actually retiring, but they're still in a better place than they would be if they never started the process. I think you also have to build out an external network, right? So for us right now, fortunately, we'll see because the wars are kind of in limbo now. There's a lot of civilian organizations and benevolent organizations that want to benefit, like uh, give back to the military, right? So um, if you don't have one person looking at that, you don't know what they are. Like there's an example, the honor foundation is a great one for our guys that teach people how to like, you know, not just shoot people, right? Like they can wear a suit and talk like a normal human being, right? Not say Roger and copy after everything. So there's a lot of the external networks uh, that can help us with that. But without that one person running it, you're not going to be able to build those networks as much. And then I think you need to build lanes in your transition programs. And I think this would be the same for a professional team. Like some people are going to get out and go back to school, right? Some people are going to get out and try to be like an independent contractor, or in this case, maybe go back into coaching if we're talking about sports. And some people are going to go on this tr 
you know, brand new entrepreneurial, like brand new tack, right? But you should have some kind of pillars where, hey, if this is where you're at and these are the six people leaving the team, two are going to this, three are going to this, and one is going to this. So you kind of have a cohort going through similar experiences. Like I think that's key as well because everyone feels alone and alone and afraid when they're leaving something that is that's been their whole life for a long time, right? And they've sacrificed a lot for it. Be it sports or be it sports or the military, you sacrifice a lot to be an elite, right? Uh, and I think going through that together and the way out is also just as good as going through it together on the way in. So I think those four things are key to setting up a transition program. Again, just hiring a dedicated person, starting a phased time where everyone has to do it. Uh, building out that external network uh, that can actually help you with the process and then basically send up some kind of lanes so people can go out in cohorts as well. It's it surely differs for individuals. And I think if you look at it, there's three reasons. One is personalities are different, right? So some people are very open to being vulnerable and some people are very open to a growth mindset and some people aren't, right? And they can still be successful in this organization. But I think if I've learned anything, transition requires a lot of vulnerability, right? So if your personality is not new to that or open to that, I think people struggle differently across that. Two is the family, right? Are you the predominant breadwinner? Does your wife work and you might never have to work again? Um, is your relationship just not healthy in a place where you're starting this new phase of life in a good time? Like, I think that matters to people's transition. The last one is just their health overall, right? Like, are they, is their body destroyed and they're going to never be able to, you know, run, run a race with their kid or are they pretty healthy and they can still jump if that's what they like to do. So I think, I think there's probably lots of reasons, but when we see different levels of success and transition from here, it's, it's always going to, it's always going to be personality, health, and then family. I guess the other question there is what are some of the pitfalls to avoid? You've mentioned how to do it, how not to do it. I, at the individual level or the organizational level? I think at the organizational level would be a good place to start with that one. Yep. I think you can't say you're going to do something and not do it. And, and what I mean is if you tell them when you hire them that we're going to run you really hard, uh, take care of you while you're here, and then take care of you before you leave, you better be sure you're doing those things. Right. And I think that destroys trust in the organization across the board. So if you, if you heard that at recruitment, selection, hired your team time, and then you don't do those things as leaders, you've lost the entire um, trust in the organization, which which makes the whole process harder to do. I think not having them in cohorts. So like for us, we kind of tried to do all things at one time. So you could leave the military, what they call an ETS, uh, exit the service. You could do it because you're going back to the big air force. So you're leaving special operations and going back to the combat air force or conventional air force, or you could retire, right? We, we tried to put those all together because, you know, we only had one specialist and it's a limited number of assets, but that's not good either, right? So you shouldn't put people together that aren't in the same phase of life, seasons of life, right? Because I think the problems are much different for a 20-year retiree than a guy that's getting out after four years, right? So I think don't, don't mix apples and oranges if you don't have to. And I think don't kind of modeling what healthy vulnerability is, right? Like I think everyone has to make transitions in their lives, but we kind of like you transitioned into the military, which was hard, but we forget that because it was, you know, a long time ago. You somehow were in a relationship with another human that you were vulnerable, um, right? So we, we have these examples where we can model vulnerability, but we don't. Uh, I think that is what could go wrong. And lastly, it's just not explaining the grieving cycle, right? Like, like it is a loss, no matter if you're leaving an elite sport or, or the elite military unit, like you're going to go through denial. You're going to go through, you know, anger, sadness, you know, all the what ifs, and then maybe you'll have 10 minutes of acceptance and that's all going to start again. Right. So like an organization that won't, won't talk about this being a grieving process, I think fail 
feel a good transition to. Right. And on a more personal level, are there steps that the individual can take to ease with their transition as well, to ease themselves through that transition? Yeah. I think just one being open-minded and having a growth mindset. And if you don't know how to do that, like that's why we have psychologists in the process, right? We try to help them sit down with one of us as a coach, just to help them open their minds uh, and open their growth mindset and help them do that. Two is constant reminders that they're going back to day one, right? Like these guys here, and I, I think with probably most of the people that are in, in your organizations or who you're going to listen to this, they're the best of the best, right? And then you got to go back and like learn how to be X, like you're not the best of the best anymore, right? So it's helping people kind of remember that uh, it's okay to start at the bottom again uh, and your goal should be to get to the top again, but you can't just go back right to the top, right? And then I think the other one is just uh, willingness to fail fast. Like most of our guys have never failed, right? Really, they've never failed, right? Or, or I shouldn't say that. They've never failed significantly, right? They've made mistakes, but like outright objective failure. Um, but they're going to fail on some things as they go into these new jobs and helping them understand that, hey, man, like just don't beat your head. Don't take it too serious. Get back up and go. Because that's what they would do operationally or on the field, right? They would make a mistake and they would put it in their little box and they would go go to the next play. But when it's in part of this transition program, they catastrophize it significantly, right? Like I'm never going to make it because I didn't I didn't like going back to school, right? Well, reality, you have lots of different options and school doesn't have to be the thing you did, but but you got to teach them to fail fast in a in a broader context than just operational or athletics. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Chad, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it.